Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. This episode is part of our special Reimagining Education series. To help visualize what the future might look like for English learners, their teachers, families, and communities, we are bringing together the people who are working to ensure that students have every opportunity to achieve their highest aspirations, despite these unprecedented challenges. We'll bring in EL leaders from around the country to discuss what they are planning for when schools reopen, how they plan on mitigating learning loss, how they are restructuring educator roles and resources under possible budget constraints, and much more. As always, we are committed to keeping you informed and inspired with resources to help you support your English learners. If you'd like to find more information or contribute to the series, check out our distance learning page at distance.elevation.com. Remember that Elevation has two L's. We'll be releasing new episodes as we record them, so new information will always be available. As always, thanks for listening, stay safe, and take care of each other. Connor Williams, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations for the third time. Really appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And for those of you who didn't catch uh, the other episodes that we've done with you, mostly around uh, dual language, bilingual education, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're joining us from at this point uh, during quarantine, and uh, and what's your current role? Yeah, I'm at the um, one of the many home offices now of the Century Foundation, right? The, uh, the progressive think tank that I work for. Most of the time, I, I work out of our DC office. I still live in DC. I just work out of my house office now. Um, my my current role there as a fellow is to I do a ton of uh, research and writing on issues related to English language learners, dual language learners in U.S. schools. Uh, a lot of different points of intersection between immigration policy and education policy. And uh, I'm continuing to do that work as best I can while juggling uh, parenting and and all of the other things. Yep, that sounds very, very familiar. Um, I am still accessing lots of your work. I read one recently on the 74, an article that you wrote. And so it's nice to see that it's still coming out there. We really appreciate um, all the work that you've done and continue to do uh, by giving us your perspective. Um, Thanks. Yeah. And so recently you've actually done some uh, different kind of work. I think you'd maybe consider it that way as well. Um, you've created a list of online resources for English learners um, and also an EL virtual learning forum. Um, we can link to those resources in the show notes, but uh, for now, I'd love to hear about sort of how you started with that work, where it's where it's going, and I think most importantly for our conversation now, um, what you've learned from folks as you've put these uh, resources together in terms of EL education, where we are now, and where we're going. Yeah, well, so the the thinking here has been, I was getting asked by a number of educators and, and journalists, uh, advocates, lots of folks. Uh, once school closures started rolling across the country, people were coming to me and saying, so, okay, so what's the best practice approach to doing virtual learning, remote learning, distance learning at large scale while also meeting the needs of English learners? And I said, well, the truth is we don't know, obviously. The thing about an unprecedented public health crisis is that it's not precedented. We don't know how to do this, certainly not without any time or planning. And so, you know, I sort of sat on that for a few days and kept telling people I didn't know what to do and realized that, um, that one, that's not a good enough answer, but that two, 
in these kinds of situations, the right thing to do is to both acknowledge that we, we aren't sure what the right answers are, but that means one, that we have lots of room to experiment and that two, we should be sharing the results of any experiments we try as quickly as we can. So the idea here was to start an online uh, forum for any educator, any researcher, any advocate who cares about or is working with English learners who can talk about what they're trying, what they're hearing about, what seems to be working, what seems to be not working so well. The idea being that, I mean, just to pull random places out of, out of a hat, let's say that some district in Michigan is finding that a particular app is not working very well for communicating with linguistically diverse families. We want to know about that so that some district in Nevada doesn't try that one. Um, if some district in Ohio is finding uh, a really effective way to get English learners speaking and producing language at home, we want to make sure that districts in California and in Oregon and in New York can learn from that. So that's what was going on. Um, that's why we set it up. We're always looking for more people, of course. So, you know, please get in touch if you'd like to be added to the forum and participate. Uh, you asked what we've learned. I think, I mean, the, the truth, the full truth is we've learned that the state of the field is as I described at the beginning. We just don't know really what right. to do. But we've also learned that people are in really good faith, good hearted ways, trying their best. We, we've gotten lots of good uh, examples of resources for communicating with families, um, lots of good troubleshooting about, I was referencing before, about you know, apps that are better or worse for communicating with families, strengths and weaknesses of particular ones. We've heard a lot about curricular resources and activities that, that folks can um, uh, can launch to try to get uh, English learners in communication with with peers who are native English speakers uh, and culturally competent online resources and, and culturally rich online resources that can also help with the development of ELs, uh, home cultures and languages as well. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I mean, it, you know, we're, we've been doing a lot of the same kind of work with our Look for the Helper series. The difference is that it's been mostly in, in the form of conversations and videos and blog posts and more sort of, I think, inspirational and conversational, uh, as opposed to actually, you know, giving out uh, ideas, specific ideas for specific resources, although I've done some of that as well. But what what resonates, um, one word that resonated to me that I think is actually widely overused, except for this situation, uh, is the word unprecedented. I mean, and, and, you know, you mentioned that because it is unprecedented, um, you know, we just, we're all kind of in the same page in terms of we don't know what's right and what's uh, the right thing to do, but sharing information, getting it out there, experimenting, um, uh, I think is crucial. And you also mentioned the idea of families, family engagement. I mean, that was the first thing as I spoke to people, I think I've maybe spoken with about 20 people uh, on the podcast since this whole thing started. And the first thing they're, they're concerned with is family engagement, making sure that students are, are, are sort of safe and they have food to eat and their basic needs are met, including uh, that of their families. And that's been pretty inspiring because while I think family engagement has always been important, it's, it, there's, there's a spotlight being shined on it right now um, that is extremely bright and extremely difficult sort of mess for anybody looking from the outside, which I think is, uh, which I think is really great. I'm actually seeing this like, this like combination of the importance of family engagement technology integration in the form of maybe like having an instructional designer uh, or a learning designer and then a content expert in the form of maybe the, the either the content teacher or the EL specialist and these these three people coming together sometimes they're not three people sometimes they're two or one or five or whatever the case may be but these things coming together to kind of really do our best to serve um, again not only the student but the family and the community which is kind of nice to see 
Yeah, I agree. I, you know, the section one of the next pieces I have coming out is on the, I resist calling it an opportunity. I don't think it's an opportunity. This is a, this is a tragedy and there's important that we just keep that front and center, but that there is because of the nature of distance learning right now, it's going to be critical that English only schools, which is most of our schools, um, recognize now the importance of continuing development for ELs in their home languages. If they're at home in linguistically isolated settings where they have no English speaking peers or adults in their, their homes, it's not valuable to, to encourage their, their caregivers, the adults in their lives who, who have weak English skills to try to sort of scuffle by in those languages or in English rather, the value rather is to have to really encourage now to take this moment to recognize the value of getting parents engaged, getting families engaged, getting them involved to use their home languages and to build on their cultural and linguistic assets, which are significant and considerable. We have tons of research showing that the stronger an English learner is in their home language, the better that helps them learn English and develop in the long run. So that's, I've got a piece on that coming out. And I think it's, it's critical around why family engagement matters now so much more than, than ever before. Because, of course, families are the ones who don't have to be distanced. They're right there with the kids. Right, right, right. yeah. And it's, it's interesting because in many ways now the families are seeing things that they've never seen before in terms of what's actually happening. Granted, a Zoom meeting is very different than an in-person brick-and-mortar class. But, yeah. you know, many ways, I mean, I'm seeing it in my own situation, uh, you know, and I was a teacher for, for a long time, so it's not foreign to me. But it is different that my son, who's in second grade, his teacher is coming into my living room with him you know, three days a week on a Zoom meeting. Uh, so it brings everybody together. Um, really looking forward to that piece that you mentioned. We actually just did a webinar with our friends at Silence Education on something very similar, leveraging um, students' home languages as an asset. I don't know if that was the actual title, but it was on the same topic. And I think that's really important. Yeah. So what, like, you know, you're, you're involved in, in doing a lot of writing and kind of, uh, thinking about what the future might look like. So you're, you're, you're putting information out there. So from your, your perspective, or is what you're sort of learning in this forum and when you speak with people, whether they be providers uh, of instructional materials or teachers or administrators, um, is it similar to how you see it being portrayed in the media? Do you think there's a, there's a difference there? I think it's mostly similar. Uh, one thing that I, I have, I've seen more, uh, well, let me start by saying, the way it's being portrayed in the media is pretty cartoonish, but, but I think like broadly accurate, right? Which is, there was a piece in the New York Times a, a week or so ago saying, right, how to um, learn at home in a language you don't understand or something like that. That was their headline. And it was, it was a little simplistic. It was, it was a sort of a poor me story and the awful story about, so, you know, supposedly the, the sort of weak and, and low performing and struggling students who don't speak English very well and, you know, there's this story about how they weren't being um, able to access online learning. And I think that all of that is a real thing. It's all a real fact in a lot of settings. Um, It is also the case, right, that that's only one version of the English learner story in the United States. It's only one version of the immigrant story in the United States, um, which is just variegated and, and, and really diverse by language, by culture, by race, by ethnicity, by socioeconomic status. So that's one thing to note, right, is that there are many, ELs are not a single student group, really. They are a many student group. And um, and so I would say that it's more diverse and, and there's a lot more com- complexity to these stories than we hear often. But I would say, in addition to that, one 
thing that I've only just started to see coverage in the media is the, the sort of Plyler versus Doe um, Supreme Court case implications of distance learning. What that means is that was a court case that that found that students had uh, or children could enroll in public education, had, had the, the right to access public education settings regardless of their families or their immigration status. Uh, and so that means that when schools move online, there's a case to be made, a civil rights case at least, that we could be, that schools and school districts could be in violation of a student's civil rights if when they move learning online, they don't make necessary accommodations to provide equal access to high quality educational opportunities that can be reached by immigrant communities. It, it starts to become a little bit um, fuzzier because of course there's, there's a sort of miasma there of, of language and culture and immigration status that they don't all sit together neatly in, in a legal sense. But I don't think that's been investigated sufficiently, right? Partly because the immigration reporters and the education reporters in the media don't always work together or work the same beats. So, you know, if you're, if you're an immigration reporter who's tuned into the Plyler versus Doe um, requirements, you may not be tuned into how English learners are served in public ed and vice versa. If you're an education reporter who's thinking about English learners in your story, you might not be thinking about immigration law when you're approaching your story. Yeah. And that gets to the, one of my next questions. I mean, there's a lot to be said about sort of the equity issues here. Um, you know, and, and we've talked a lot about how they're playing out right now. And there were cases of some districts that just were saying when this whole thing started, hey, we're not we're not going to do anything until we understand until we know that everybody is going to have equitable access to to the education that they uh, that they deserve. What I mean, in terms of like moving forward, how do you see schools addressing these equity issues? Uh, you know, when schools are already talking about sort of scaffolding how they're going to open schools or, or continuing with distance learning, and given all the information that you just provided. Um, how, how are we going to go about doing that in your view? Let me, let me expand on what I said just a minute ago. One of the things we have to remember in this case is that English learners are defined by their language profile in the United States, but a lot of the hurdles that these kids are facing, and you see this on the forum that I set up, are the same hurdles that you hear in more general equity conversations. That is to say that equitable access for English learners is going to actually be in many cases going to be very similar to equitable access to education for um, students in low-income families or students of color or sure. what have you. I mean, this is partly because of, of just the intersectionality of, of inequity in the United States. English learners may be defined by their language development, but they're overwhelmingly also children of color. They're also more likely to be uh, growing up in families below the poverty line. Um, they're also, especially in the last few years, more likely to be living in immigrant communities that are facing unique stresses and trauma uh, related to shifts in immigration policy and enforcement. And so that's just to say that when we're thinking about in educational inequity around these kids, we have to think about racial inequities, socioeconomic inequities, and also linguistic, linguistic and, and cultural inequities as well. Yeah, important clarifying points, thank you. Yeah, I mean, but so thinking forward on this, the, the good news and bad news is that a lot of the, the most important things these kids need going forward are going to sound and look a lot like what lots of kids need. 
they they're on the forum we, we keep on seeing um i keep on hearing from educators who are concerned about lack of access both in terms of devices right kids who don't have access to computers chromebooks uh, mobile phones even and also connectivity so they might mm -hmm. have some of the hardware but can't get it online or can't if they can get it online can't access what um what learning opportunities the schools are putting forward that's not an English learner problem. That's a, a problem related to school resources and to, to child poverty and related to a bunch of other pieces of structural inequity in the United States. But it's also going to be a priority for English learners. And so to a degree, these kids don't necessarily, a lot of their biggest needs aren't necessarily going to be language specific. But the one big one that we do hear a lot, in addition to family engagement, one big thing that schools are really going to have to think about is the degree to which being at home, being away from peers, being away from uh, adults in schools for a lot of English learners does mean, like I said before, linguistic isolation. It means kids may or may not be using any languages much during the day. And they certainly, um, there's good reason to believe that they'll be using much less English during the day. And so there's, there's some concern, some reason to think heavily about how are we going to work, especially intentionally, right now also over the summer and when schools return to, to campus to ensure that english learners language development their oral language production their speaking and listening uh gets kick-started in a big way how do we make sure that they're engaging with language in terms of reading and writing as much as possible how do we re-immerse them in all the languages that they speak going forward because the, this social distancing right now could there's reason to believe it could have unique linguistic isolation effects on these kids yeah I, you know, it's funny. It's not funny. It's interesting that I, I just, I haven't heard too many people talk about it in that way, um, that they're not having, these students aren't having, you know, an opportunity to speak really either language in many cases. I mean, or, or, or whether it's more than more than two languages, you know, the, the, there is, um, there is so much emphasis being put on how do we, how do we provide good distance learning instruction? Um, that the idea of just kind of what day-to-day -day life maybe looks like linguistically, uh, you know, when it comes to speaking a language, I'm sure people are thinking about it, but it's, it's, it's just interesting to hear you frame it in that way. And then what I'd like to expand upon is, you know, when you said we really think about how we need to reimmerse these students in, in language and sort of kickstart this, um, here's the hard question. I mean, you know, you, you and I have talked a lot about different topics related to high-quality instruction. For English learners, you've written a lot uh, about policy um, and what we need to do to make that happen. Given all of these challenges with learning loss and mitigating that, people are calling this whole thing, you know, the COVID slide, lots of different terminology being put up. Then there's budget uncertainty. There's, there's, there's going to be a whole host of, of new and completely unpredictable circumstances that come up between now and whenever the new school year begins. So, as the calendar flips over to May and school leaders and teachers are beginning to think about what next year or the summer or whatever are going to look like, how do you think school leaders should be evaluating their needs to determine how to invest in English learner education moving forward, particularly as it pertains to what you just mentioned, which is how do we kickstart that language that may have been lost or, or may have been missed during this time? Sure. Uh, it, of course, it's, it's easier to, to, talk about how they should think about it and it's a lot harder to tell them what to do right so i'm going to start with the hard, the easy part and maybe work my way to the harder part i mean the, the how they should think about it 
is first they should start from a position of of humility and of self-forgiveness meaning all those challenges you listed are real learning loss budget uncertainty uh and it just the, the, the general unpredictability of our present anyone who's in the classroom or who's leading a school right now deserves enormous credit for trying their best yeah thanks for just saying getting that. just getting there and doing the work is already um really hard right now uniquely hard and, and I, I hope that anyone who hears this knows that that especially now i'm a parent of three i'm a former teacher i'm so grateful for the work that you're doing um in, in classrooms right now uh even as they've gone online and when we come back in the fall so that's that's how they should think about it they should begin from a place knowing that it will always feel like they're not doing enough it will always feel like things aren't quite right it's always going to be uh inadequate imperfect but, inadequate yeah I mean, and I, I think most of most folks who've been in the classroom understand that, right? I think that's it's it's always a little like that, but now more than ever. But the other thing, I mean, in terms of what we should do, there are there are things, right? I mean, one thing that I would encourage school leaders to think about that's not a specific activity so much as a, a mindset shift too, is I would encourage them to to detach their thinking around English learners and around online learning from technology entirely meaning i would start from goals start from priorities so if the priority is make sure kids are talking some make sure you're engaging families in ways that really reach them make sure that kids aren't just talking about school but are also maintaining some social continuity with kids in their classes start with that as a goal and then decide okay so is there a snazzy app that can do this right or is it as simple or as, as complicated maybe as setting up phone trees where you're assigning kids um, friends that they have phone calls with twice a week? Is it as simple as, or as complicated as setting up some sort of pen pal situation where kids are, you're sending stamps to kids and then you're coaching them on how to write a letter to some of their classmates. Um, there, there are other ways. It is also the case that, there are, you know, Marco Polo is this this app I keep hearing about that, frankly, I have to get my act together on and learn how to use. And I like it. A variety. Is I it use good? It. I like it. Yeah. it. I like it because it's asynchronous. You don't have to like be, you can do something. Anyway, we don't have to get into that whole thing. Keep going. But, Sorry. Right. That's <laughs> the idea, right? It may also be the case that there are some apps that really can facilitate that, that can make sure that kids are staying engaged. And again, using language, because I think that's critical, but also that they're just not losing track of one another, that they know where their friends are, that they know how their friends are feeling. Uh, keeping that social engagement also, that matters as much or more until we can get things back to some semblance of normal. Just making sure that kids aren't only, making sure that we address the, the sort of isolating trauma of not being around your peers. So that's, you know, that's nowhere near a checklist. That's nothing like, here's how you should prioritize where to invest in English learner education. But I hope it's a starting point. The only other thing I guess I would say on that is now more than ever, it's always been the right idea, but now more than ever, as budgets get tight, it's important for anyone who's got English learners in their school or in their classroom to think about marrying together academic content with language development. Yeah, These two things can't be, they can't continue to happen in a vacuum and they do in too many schools. So if you can figure out a way to make sure that your ESL work that used to be pull out alone in the hallway with a couple of other kids, instead of doing that, that it's probably budget efficient, but also um, the research on this is stronger, that 
most of the time for younger students, it should be in classrooms where the ESL is happening as more of an ELD type block with academic content integrated to it. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole content and language thing is something that we've been focusing a lot on, particularly before this. And then sort of marrying that with the idea that, uh, you know, we're using more technology right now. There's more distance learning stuff that's happening sort of without anybody having a choice in the matter, quite frankly. Um, yeah. But perhaps that presents an opportunity, you know, uh, as as teachers are trying to reach out to all of their students in, in various ways um, you know, over distance learning tools. Maybe it's a way to kind of marry those two things together. Um, we'll see. So I think I think that there is. Um, there are a lot of possibilities there. And I also like the idea that you mentioned of, you know, you said you didn't create a checklist and you said you hope that was a start, what you gave, but the start was actually planning from the end. Like, what do you, what do you want to accomplish and what tools will help get you there, which is, I think, a healthy way to approach um, tech integration, which people are, people are steeped in now. I mean, people are, if anything, uh, overwhelmed with, with different tools that they can use to try to reach their students. Yeah, for sure. I think that's right. In the longer, I mean, look, from a parent's perspective, the, watching this, my kids attend a school that is um, uh, about half the students are English learners and, and a majority of the students are students of color. A majority of the students are also um, uh, eligible for free and reduced price lunch subsidies. I've, it's, a, it's a profoundly diverse and wonderful school. But as a parent who's, uh, who's watching this, I've watched the the many challenges that all of us the family side across all of those different diversities are having in just navigating the basic pieces of getting on various synchronous instruction video calls, managing different links to asynchronous recorded. I mean, it's been, it's been a ton for, for me to manage just as a dad. So I I can only imagine uh, one on the back end for teachers, how much work it is. And then two, the, the challenges that, um, Families that say, so I, I'm lucky enough to be able to work from home, but if you're an essential worker who's at your job during the day and then is also trying to make sure your kids, while you're not there, are doing these various things on computers without you maybe there to help them get logged in or set it up, I mean, it, it's got to be it's got to be a major challenge for them. It's certainly a challenge for me. Right. Absolutely. 100%. Um, and, and I think, like I said, I think we're learning a lot from that, even, even if that learning is just, wow, this is going to be really hard for for. for certain people in particular and certain students and, and, and teachers in particular. That being said, the last question that I have for you, I'm trying to sort of end these by wrapping up with something positive and silver linings here. I mean, what, what do you, what do you hope that um, based on kind of what we're learning or trying or doing now um, that we should continue when this is all behind us? And again, I'm framing this as I don't think things are necessarily going to go back to, what we consider normal, but if we reimagine what everything sort of looks like, what's one thing that you hope will stick with us? One thing I hope is that we, we recognize the value of experimentation. I've been hinting at it the whole time. It, it turns out that it may be just the case that there is no good way to do this. Not only is there no right way to do this, there's no really good way. I mean, this is one of the things that I, I wrestle with right now. Back to the tech piece, right? There's been all this conversation around how do we make sure that we have equitable access to online learning? given what we know about the real challenges of delivering high quality online learning, even when we plan for it and have models set up, I think it's important that we, maybe we don't want to actually stress getting everybody a device. It may be the case, in fact, that we don't know enough about how well to make use those devices to actually go ahead with it. And I think that's instructive for the future here too, right? And this is to tie a bow on it. 
when you're dealing with an unprecedented crisis, it's important both as educators, but also for the experts and the policymakers who are trying to coach and structurally nudge educators into particular things to know that we may not be able to do this very well. We're going to have to adjust our definitions of success. We're going to have to adjust our definitions of what folks can do and on a given day and, and, and what um, we can expect from schools at a, a particular moment, because this is really hard. It's yeah. really hard. So I hope though, that we're also learning the value of, of um, how all the different pieces of public education are linked up with one another. I think it was becoming like concerningly a fad going into this right before this happened. I was watching the growth of conversations around social emotional learning and even sometimes the whole child conversations that we were having in public education as though this were a, a separate and distinguishable thing or these were separate and distinguishable things from academic development. There was this sense that we had needed to focus schools on this other thing as opposed to academic learning. I think ELs are a, a useful topic to study and they're, they're a, such a, outstanding high potential group of students, partly because as you work with and work on issues pertaining to these students, you, you start to realize that it's impossible to do education without doing academic content, social development, language development, and all uh, just this whole host of child development pieces, an actual whole child uh, approach. So I'm hoping that as we come out of this and, and we're all coming out of isolation and all of our kids are going back with one another eventually, we start to really recognize the value of those communities that our kids are in. We start to value the relationships that they build with the adults in their lives at school, with the kids in their lives at school. And that we take that seriously as a big part of education going forward without for a moment taking any kind of a blink on the value of high academic expectations either. These are all things that happen together. And again, English learners hammer this home because it turns out that if you marry their academic work with their, their language development, that's when they do best. And one of the best ways to do that is to prioritize their social development, right. to ensure right. that they're working with peers, they're producing language on a regular basis. So that's the kind of priority shift I hope we have. Yeah, that's great. And it all ties in together for all students, whether they're English learners or not, just the exactly. idea of prioritizing all of that and, and, and putting it all together. Um, so I want to I want to um, end with just just um, having you let us know where people can find that form that you've been talking about and any other information that you've put out there um, and maybe also uh, how people can sort of follow you in the work that you're doing. Right. So the the challenge with the forum is that in order to allow educators to have free reign to speak candidly about what they're doing, we're keeping it private. So there is no public link to it. Um, but if you're interested, if you hear this and would like to join, my email address is Williams at the Century Foundation is TCF. So Williams at tcf.org. Uh, shoot me an email. I'm happy to, to put anybody on as long as you're not a journalist or a reporter. Um, and then other than that, I'm on Twitter at Connor P. Williams and uh, writing frequently for the 74 million and at, at the homepage at uh, tcf.org. Perfect. So we will post uh, all that information for people to find out on the show notes as well. Uh, but as always, Connor, your perspective is always greatly appreciated. I think you have a unique one, especially given the work that you've been doing um, on these forums and putting these uh, putting these resources out there for folks. I know you've been speaking with a lot of people and I look forward to that uh, 
that next article you said that was coming out soon on um, was about leveraging home language, uh, yes. right? I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, yeah, no, it's yeah the 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 importance of valuing home language development now that many ELs are in settings where um, their home language is the only language that their caretakers speak uh, fluently. Perfect. All right. Well, Connor, thanks so much. Uh, Take care, stay safe, and uh, we'll be in touch. Likewise. Be well, Steve. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.